Well, throughout history, the people of God have always had to find courage or take heart in the middle of despair and disappointment and pain. Another way to say it is this way. All of us have had to wrestle with God. Now, this wrestling goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. This is going to be a very long sermon, Genesis. Because Adam and Eve, Noah, and even maybe the most prominent character in the Old Testament, Abraham, had to wrestle with God. Now, think about Abraham for a second. He was 75 years old. He had climbed the career ladder. His life is established. His marriage is good. He has his, everything, everything's covered. And God comes to him and says, leave. I want you to leave what is comfortable, what is established, what is normal. I want you to leave your family, your cousins, your nieces, your nephews. I want you to leave everything and I want you to follow me and I want you to make a new life with your family in a foreign place. But God promised Abraham, if you do this, I will bless you. And there were many blessings that God gave Abraham, but one of them was a family, a family that God said would multiply over the face of the earth, a family that would be a blessing to the whole world. Well, one of his grandsons was named Jacob, and he was part of that promise. In fact, Jacob's sons, he had 12 of them, became the heads of the tribe of Israel. And you read about them all over the Old Testament. Jacob's dad, Abraham's son, his name was Isaac. And Isaac himself was a miracle child. He was promised to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, in an old age. And Isaac was Jacob's dad. And here's what the text says in Genesis 25. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So Rebekah... And Isaac could not have children. See, sometimes God supernaturally heals. And I know we have experienced that here at Seacoast in the last couple of years. Sometimes he doesn't. But in this case, he heals this woman and she is able to bear children. And she actually is pregnant with two babies. Genesis 25 says, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first one came out red and his body like a hairy coat. So they called his name Esau. Now the word Esau, we kind of missed this because in Hebrew, Esau means hairy. So this baby is red and hairy. I want you to think of Chewbacca and Elmo kind of smashed together. That's Esau. And, and, and some babies are only cute to their parents, right? So, but I'm sure they loved Esau. But shortly after Esau was born, twin number one is out. It says in the text, afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when his wife, Rebecca, bore these two twins. Now, we begin to see Jacob's character from the very womb. He's a heel grabber. That's what his name means, Jacob. He's a deceiver. Uh, there's a big debate in social science. 
Are we who we are because of innate things like our genetics, our personalities, our our kind of inborn preferences, or is it our environment externally that primarily shapes who we are? Well, there's no debate that there are some things hardwired into us. All you got to do is have children to find this out. I have four kids and every single one of them is different. I mean, they are all unique. Now, there's some similarities, don't get me wrong, but uh, there's dominant personalities, more passive personalities. Each one has a distinct kind of makeup, and I think that was just kind of out of the womb. Raise your hand if you have a kid that way that's different, right? Or you are a kid that's different than your other siblings. We, We see this, it's true. Social science tells us that, but social science also tells us that our family system shapes a lot of who we are, specifically our character. In a way, our home life maps our brains as to how we do relationships. One of my buddies who has been locked up with his children uh, during the quarantine uh, sent me a text the other day, and and it was very simple. It said, um, it recently occurred to me how dysfunctional my family was. And that was it. That was the text. Maybe you have had that recent discovery of how dysfunctional your family is, being around them all of the time. Well, Jacob would give you a run for your dysfunctional family uh, money here because what had happened to Jacob was his mom kind of latched onto him as a young age. And in a sense, we see it throughout Genesis, made him kind of a surrogate spouse. She confided in him emotionally and and she preferred him. Now, Esau was a daddy's boy, um, but Jacob was a mama's boy. And in the womb, Jacob came out. He's, a, he's kind of a deceiver. He's kind of a liar. He's kind of a cheater. But then in his home environment, it seems like he had to constantly compete for his dad's affection and his attention because his dad loved his brother. Uh, nature and nurture and all the non-resourcefulness in Jacob's life meet when Isaac tells Esau, his preferred son, to cook his last meal. He knew he was dying. And he wanted his son, who was a great hunter, to cook a meal. And then he would give him in what the ancient Near East called the blessing. And the blessing was the most important thing that a father could give a son. And he, and you got that blessing if you were the firstborn son. So as Isaac is asking Esau to go kill and, and make him his last meal, mom overhears. And so she tells Jacob, Um, go and get a hairy cloak on and I'm going to make a meal and you go take this to your meal and deceive your father. And instead of Esau getting the blessing, you will get the blessing. Well, that's exactly what he does. And, and, and now, you know, if you know the story at all, he's already taken away his birthright. He's, he's now taking the blessing that belonged to his brother. And Genesis 27 says now Esau, because of this, deception, hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, when the days of mourning for my father are over, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. Now, put yourself in Jacob's sandals just for a second. Your brother, whom you have deceived and is is a good Hunter wants to kill you. And so because Jacob's been a little bit of a mama's boy, 
She's cooked for him. She's cleaned for him. Uh, she's made decisions for him. He doesn't know what to do with conflict. He's not sure where to go. And so she sends him away to her brother in a foreign land called Haran. And his brother's, and her brother's name was Laban. And so if, if you enter the story here, it reminds you of a certain Netflix documentary that I don't think I recommend, but everybody knows about it. So I'll mention it. It's called Tiger King. Uh, don't, don't, I'm not saying you should watch this, but, it, but if you have watched this or if you have heard about this, this is the kind of crazy that Jacob is entering into in Haran because he sees Rachel, this, this girl, and he wants to marry her. And so Laban, her dad says, okay, fine, work seven years, she's yours. So he works seven years for this woman. And then on the wedding night, when the wedding would be consummated and the way they did it in the ancient Near East is the bride's face would be covered. He discovers it's not Rachel, um, but it's his, her, it's her sister Leah. And so he actually marries Leah and he says, you tricked me, Laban. He said, okay, work seven more years and you can have Rachel. So this is why it's like the Tiger King friends. If you've seen that show. <laughs> And so he works another seven years, but he knows and he gets, he gets his bride and he knows he's got to get back to the promised land so that he can receive the blessing that his dad had given him. But he has to deal with his, his brother Esau. And so finally we see in the text, he prays. Sometimes we only pray when we're desperate. Sometimes we only seek God when there's no one else to seek. And so Jacob prays, he sends a gift ahead to bribe Esau hoping to kind of make peace with him. But he realized because of his deception that he's probably going to get killed. So he divides his family up and he himself goes into the middle of the desert by himself. And what happens next is one of the most amazing stories in scripture because Jacob is getting ready to wrestle with God, literally. Now here's the truth. Throughout history, God's people have always wrestled with God. And when you wrestle with God, one of the things that happens and one of the things that happened to Jacob is you wrestle with your own loneliness. Remember, he's alone. And so when we're wrestling with God, it is a chance to face our own loneliness. Some of you have been wrestling with God throughout this quarantine. You've had to encounter God in new ways. You've had to see God in the barrenness maybe of your own soul and, and then the lack of distraction and the lack of uh, abilities to do your routines. You've had to face your loneliness. That always happens when we wrestle with God. I, I was talking to my wife the other day and she said something very profound as she often does. She says, sometimes we only connect with God when we don't have anyone else. And in the scripture, the desert is a metaphor for loneliness. The desert is a metaphor for solitude. We see it in the life of Abraham and Moses and Elijah and even the life of our Savior, Jesus. And so Jacob was left alone. And it says a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? 
And he said, my name is Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but it will be called Israel because you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, what's your name? And he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name Penuel because he said, I have seen the face of God and yet my life has been delivered. What a story. Now, I'm quite sure that when he started wrestling this person, he thought it was either Esau or one of Esau's men. Jacob is described as being left alone. So there's no one to manipulate. There's no one to control. He's alone. And this is where God gets a hold of him. Literally. It's in the lonely places sometimes that God shows up. It's in the lonely places that we can wrestle with God. The text says that he wrestled with a man, but Jacob said, I wrestled with God. So which is it, Bible? Did he wrestle with a man or did he wrestle with God? Well, what we believe, according to uh, Old Testament scholars is, and this happened a few times in the Old Testament, Jesus actually showed up at times in the Old Testament. It's called a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus incarnated. He became flesh in a baby. We celebrate that at Christmas. But there are some pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. This seems to be one. And in that wrestling match, Jesus changed Jacob's name, which meant cheater or striver or deceiver, to Israel. And the word Israel means one who strives with God. So God picked a fight with Jacob. And this isn't some like slap fight, some junior high, like backroom, you know, locker room squabble. This is like UFC, right? This is ground and pound. This is, this is somebody's going to die. That was the kind of wrestling match that's going on. But here's what's interesting. Wrestling with God did not destroy Jacob. It just disciplined him. And so the rest of his life, he walked with a limp and his name has changed. Forever. Jacob symbolized, hey, I'm going to control my own life. I'm going to live independently of God. Israel symbolized, no, I have a new dependence on God. I don't have to be in control of my own life. God can be in control. So God finally gets through to Jacob, even though he had to physically wrestle him to do so. Now, I thought about this story a lot. Honestly, I think it's one of the strangest stories in the Bible. What is going on here? One way to say it is this way. What was God wrestling out of Jacob? What was he trying to squeeze out of him? What was he trying to push out of him? And what I think, as I've studied this, is I think God is wrestling out one of Jacob's wounds. We read back in Genesis 25 a little bit more about the home life that Jacob grew up in. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I wonder, friends, if Jacob had spent most of his life trying to get his dad's approval. I wonder if part of what God was wrestling out of him is this hole in his soul of affirmation that his dad just didn't meet. One of my favorite authors on this kind of topic, um, manhood and 
father wounds. His name's John Eldridge. And in his book, he says this, whether through violence or rejection or passivity or abandonment, most men did not receive the love and validated they, validation they needed as boys from their father. They received something else, a wound. For if your father had the power to validate, then he also had the, the power to invalidate. Either your father did not uh, bestow on you a deep sense of masculinity and, val- and validation, or maybe he just left you with silence. Or he directly invalidated you. He emasculated you. Either way, it's a wound that becomes defining for a man. I, I, I thought it was very interesting. I was looking at this, book, this um, magazine called Men's Fitness the other day. And one of the editors wrote this. His father had just died. He said, I'm still waiting for my father to talk to me about sex and success and money and marriage and religion and raising kids. The shame of it all is I don't know a man my age who doesn't feel like he's navigating his life without a map. There's something about dad's presence, isn't there, in our lives that validates, that blesses, that affirms. And though Jacob tricked his dad into getting the official blessing, he had missed out on his dad's attention and affirmation his whole life. And I think this one reality, dad likes my brother more than he likes me, set him up in his life to be a deceiver. So what happens when we're lonely? What happens when we're wrestling with God? We can discern our own wound just like Jacob did. Some of you know what I'm talking about. When I start talking about sibling stuff, you had that older brother, right? He was more athletic. Maybe he was more mechanically inclined. Maybe uh, he was just like your dad and you just didn't connect. Maybe you were a sister and your sister was more attractive or got more compliments or she was a better student or she was just more like mom. And so she got more attention. And here's the message that happens at times in those situations We hear, I'm not as good, I'm not as valued, I'm not as loved. And if you're a parent, right, this ought to put the terror of God in you because we gotta be so careful, don't we, with not favoring the children who maybe are most like us or maybe are most compliant. And I think what God is doing in Jacob and maybe he's doing in us through this time is he's wrestling wrestling away some of these wounds and wrestling in a new identity. The main thing that Jacob struggled with in his life is control. He was a control freak. Raise your hands if you might just be a little bit of a control freak. We don't have to go too high. We don't want to get, but yes, a lot of us wrestle with being a control freak, don't we? And, and, and he, on some level, had to deal with this. Now, all of us have control issues. We all want to kind of stay in control of our own life. But what happens to Jacob and what can happen to us is in this place of loneliness, in this place of wrestle, in this place of kind of seeing some stuff about ourselves that maybe we didn't know was there, we can actually surrender control. Like it's possible. Like that's the invitation. Like you don't have to stay in control of your own life because guess what? And I'll ask you, how's that going for you? It's not going good for me. And it doesn't go good for you because we're not made 
to try to be in control. Some of us are primarily driven this way, though. It's not just kind of a problem. It's a big problem. We have these high standards. We're very self-disciplined. Uh, we very much expect other people to keep those demands and standards. We deal with uncertainty all the time. We worry a lot. And see, when you have control issues and you begin to lose control, what happens is you will manipulate. Uh, you will manipulate circumstances and people and sometimes even God to get your way. Everything becomes a means to the end of your control. For Jacob, God is not the end for him. God is a means to a better life for him. God is a means so that he can stay in control of his own life. And just like stealing the birthright from his brother, just like deceiving and getting the blessing, what he really wanted was an easier life, a more prosperous life, a life that he is in total control of. And so God wrestles with him. And sometimes, friends, the only way to meet God is in quarantine. The only way to meet God is in isolation. The only place God is to be found is in loneliness. The only place where we can really worship is in brokenness. And I hate that so bad. I hate it so bad. But when we look at the narrative arc of scripture, when we look at the characters, that's exactly what we see. And so God has to show up just like he showed up to Jacob and say something like this to him and to us. I'm large and I'm in charge, but I'm also near and very dear to you, Jacob. I'm very near and dear to you, son and daughter. I'm going to wrestle with you until you get this. I'm going to wrestle with you until you learn to depend on me more than you. I'm going to wrestle with you until you can give up the illusion that you can control your own life. I'm going to change your name so that you don't have to spend your life defining yourself as the son or daughter that the father didn't love. How do you do that? How do you get past the wounds from your past? How do you deal with the consequences of your behavior? How do you stop trying to control your own life? Well, there's so much in this story, but, but there was maybe the greatest rock and roll song that's ever been written. And I know I'll get some arguments uh, on this one by some people around me here. But um, there was an incident that happened in Jacob's life actually before this. And it's funny because God will speak to us before the loneliness, before the wrestle, and then confirm things in the loneliness and in the wrestling. But he spoke to him and he showed him a vision. It was called the stairway to heaven. And he saw this stairway and he saw angels ascending and descending. And so God was speaking in that. Um, the, the, the ladder teaches us a lot of things, but Jesus actually talks about this ladder and then applies it to himself in John chapter one. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The ladder, the stairway to heaven teaches us that God is in heaven. We are on earth and we can't do anything to climb that ladder on our own. God has to come to us. And so that's what Jesus did. So the way to stop controlling your life, the way to overcome past wounds and present sins is to realize that God came to you. He came for you and he came to you. And he heard a voice from his father that said, this is my beloved son and daughter 
in you I am well pleased. And guess what? When Jesus heard that voice, that voice is applied to us if we're in Jesus. And so you are his son, you are his daughter. He is well pleased with you because you are in Jesus. You don't have to beg for his attention. You don't have to perform for his acceptance. You have it in Christ. And so friends, instead of trying to control our lives, instead of trying to figure out dates and charts and graphs, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't study and be informed. What if we could just say, all right, Jesus, you have come and I can rest. And here is his invitation for us to rest. This is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says these words, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's a promise. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, that is the invitation. That is what we do right now. Uh, I'm sure you're looking for some stuff to do, aren't you? Like, I'll go in the garage today. Uh, Tomorrow, maybe I'll go in the spare bedroom. I mean, we are stuck, aren't we? Maybe it's exactly where God wants us. Maybe the wrestling ring is our house. Maybe the wrestling match is not with our family or our spouses right now. Maybe the wrestling match is with God himself. Friends, it's better to be angry with God than angry without God. It's better to wrestle with God than to wrestle without God. And so here's what I love about this story. And I think this cap, you know, encapsulizes what we're trying to say. God has a hold of Jacob. God has a hold of you. Will you get a hold of him? Will you say, I'm not letting you go until I hear that voice of affirmation. I'm not letting you go till I know that you love me because of who I am and not what I do like the whole world treats me. I'm gonna hang on to you and your promises. What God is doing is trying to bring us back to the heart of what it means to know him, to the heart of worship. And so if you're listening to this, watching this, and you've never, this is all like news stories or maybe they're familiar stories, but it's hitting you for the first time. And you have never heard that voice from the Father saying, you are my son because you have never really met Jesus. I wanna invite you to meet Jesus today. Jesus lived a perfect life, a life we all should have lived, but we didn't, but he did for us. So we don't have to be perfect. Some of you are like, man, I can't try, I can't know God, I, I'm not perfect. That's perfect that you're not perfect because Jesus was perfect for you. And he died in your place for your sins so that you don't have to be punished for your sins. And he rose from death. He left all of your sin and my sin and the world's sin in that grave. And he rose again and he wants to give you new life. And he can do that for you right now. And that is the promise of the gospel. It's coming to Jesus. Because in a real sense, Jesus wrestled with God for us. He took all of our shame and sin upon himself so that we could have peace with God. I wanna invite you to that peace. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you love us. I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are in wrestling matches right now with you. Maybe they weren't aware until now that they're actually wrestling with you. Lord, would you help us to let you win? Lord, would you help us to stop trying to control our lives? 
Lord, would you just give us grace to know that you're good and that you're in charge. And so we don't have to be. God, we're not good at being God. So we just resign from that job right now. As Pastor Greg always says, we resign from trying to be the God of the universe and we trust you. And for some of us, for the first time, Jesus, we trust you and and we give our lives to you. And thank you for giving your life to us. Thank you that we can take heart because you have overcome the world. And thank you that your spirit lives in us and greater is he that's in us than anything that's in this world. And so lead us and guide us and empower us to take on the lives you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.